0: Philippians chapter 4 is where we'll be tonight. So if you find your Bibles and make your way there. And we'll turn there in just a moment. And let's read one verse tonight. And then I'm going to come back here in a little bit and we'll read some more of the, con- the context. But I want to just emphasize this verse this evening and look at it together. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. The Bible says, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Let's say a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for tonight, a chance to be together once more. We're grateful for uh, time as a church family or for the programs for our children tonight. And and just the the few moments we could share looking at your word and pray that you'd speak to us, Uh, that Lord, we give you freedom in our hearts uh, to find the application and then to apply it. And so Lord, uh, guide us and help us. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Book of Philippians was written, of course, by the Apostle Paul. Um, The church there at Philippi had been started um, by he and his companions on their second missionary journey. It was the very first church that was established in Europe. And so you can contextualize that a little bit. First church in Europe, it it, it was this church. And at the writing of this letter, Paul was in a Roman prison. Because he had been preaching the gospel, he was there. And while there, he had real needs. And so in a Roman prison you were responsible to provide for yourself or you would suffer. And so the church at Philippi had gotten together an offering. They had gotten together some supplies. They've done all this, put all this, this love package basically together for Paul. And they sent one of their members, a man named Epaphroditus to Paul on their behalf to present these gifts and these finances to support him. Well, while Epaphroditus was traveling or while he was there in Rome, one of the two, he got very sick and word got back to the church at Philippi. They're very concerned about him. And so there's this kind of concern, this tension that they're feeling. And Paul writes this letter back to them. And it's, it's a few things. Of course, it would be instruction for them. It was also a thank you letter for the needs that they had supplied and for sending Epaphroditus. And he also is sending the letter by the hand of Epaphroditus, who he said God had healed. And so here Epaphroditus was, and, and, and he was better, and so he sends him back with this note. And really, the note of Philippians, or, or the letter, is encouraging them to keep their faith strong and their spirit strong in spite of persecution. And he reminds them, though persecution, we don't like it, and it's, we would perceive it as a really, really bad thing. He said when the church gets persecuted, it just spreads, and it grows, and the gospel gets stronger, and the light shines brighter. And he says, don't disdain it, don't get upset at it. We may not like it, but we need to embrace it because it's, it's part of God's plan and what he's allowing. And so he challenges them to keep their faith strong, to keep their spirit strong, and he challenges them specifically with this idea of joy, that joy in the Christian's heart and life is supposed to be deep, not surface. It's supposed to be strong and not weak. It's not supposed to be superficial. It's not supposed to be based on any type of circumstance. Joy in the heart of a Christian takes place not because of what's going on around us, but because of what God does within our hearts and what we allow him to do and the work that he's cultivating within us. And so we get to chapter four and Paul here is winding down his letter. And he begins to specifically address conflict that was taking place in the church that had been reported to him, probably from Epaphroditus. And so Epaphroditus is giving Paul the scoop, and now he's got it. And so he's responding. And there were two women, one named Yodius and Syntyche. And as we read in verses 1, and I want you to look there with me, Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Okay, so really he's winding down the letter here. We're getting this essence. He loves these people. They're special to him. He's telling them to stand fast. Verse two, he calls these two women out by name. Now, if I did that from the pulpit, that probably wouldn't be very welcome or received well, would it? But this is what he does. And no doubt, I would guess one of the men in the church is reading this maybe, Epaphroditus, and he says, I beseech Iodias and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Why would he ask them to be in the same mind? Because they weren't in the same mind. Verse three, and I entreat thee, thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other of my fellow laborers, whose names are written in the book of life. What's he saying here? These are good women. These are good people. They are saved. They know the Lord. Uh, They love the Lord, but they were at odds. And there was this conflict. conflict. And he doesn't tell us what the conflict's about. He just says that they're they're at odds. And there was this tension. And they were creating a scene and drama that should not have been present in the church. And these two women were workers for Christ But their relationship, their broken relationship was no small matter because they had won and had potential to win many to the Lord. The gospel of Christ here was at stake. He's saying the relationships that are taking place in the church, like the discipleship, the spread of the gospel is dependent on them and the way that they treat each other. It matters. The relationship between these two women, it mattered. Did you know that you can believe in Jesus Christ, work hard for the kingdom of God, be committed to the same things, love the same church and the same people, and yet have broken relationships in the church? And the answer we would all give, of course, is yeah, we know, right? We know. And so, Paul, throughout the book of Philippians, and, and through the challenge tonight, The big picture is he's saying this. We have no excuses for being unreconciled with brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those in our church. We don't have an excuse. Now, you might think you have a really good one, and the Bible says you don't. You don't have a good excuse for that. Tension is never supposed to be allowed to reach an explosive place in the church. We are not to withdraw from one another. We are not to resort to cruel power plays that the world would resort to in the church. We're not to stand idly by and wait for disputes to just resolve themselves because that never happens. We are not allowed to harden our hearts toward one another. We're not allowed to treat each other with cruelty or disdain. That's not tolerated in the church. And and, and there are a lot of reasons for it. But Paul is saying, if nothing else, understand that we are a picture to the world, that this is the light. Don't mess with it. Like what the relationships that are in the church matter so much. Our conduct, our deportment, our attitudes toward each other are a choice we make. We are to be people who are quick to forgive. We're to have grace with one another. We're to seek help from other leaders in the church when there is tension that we're not able to resolve. And we're to to seek counsel for that. And and, and sometimes we think the other person's the problem. And most of the time, it's not them, it's us. And we need to have the humility to say, if we seek help, to be ready for someone to tell us, they're not the problem you are. And you need to fix the tensions that you feel in your own heart. But I want to take a minute, and I want to focus specifically on verse 5, because Paul says these words, let your moderation be known unto all men. Most commentators would say, when translating the Greek word for moderation into English, that it's the hardest word in the, English, in the, in the Greek to translate. So of all the Koine Greek words in the New Testament, this one is especially difficult to translate. Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which would be a dictionary uh, many scholars and theologians would use when trying to translate the King James or maybe understand some of the words the King James would use, is, a, is an English dictionary that we can, we can use to, that gets close to the King James. And, and so this word moderation, they define as the state of being moderate, which helps, not at all, all right? So, Or that of keeping a due mean between extremes. Okay, so they give this illustration. The general's moderation after victory was more honorable than the victory itself. So what's the point? Well, it's not whether or not you won the battle. It's what you do after it that matters the most. In other words, what you do isn't nearly as important as how you do it. And so here's some more illustrations. It's a restraint of passion or indulgence, specifically of appetite, to eat and drink with moderation, to indulge with moderation in pleasures and exercises, calmness of mind, equanimity, as to bear prosperity or adversity with moderation, frugality and expenses. Okay, so here he has two women that are at odds with each other. They're not of the same mind. And he says specifically to them and to this circumstance and to the people involved, he said, we need to exercise moderation because obviously things had gotten a little too tense. I mean, things were either icy or hot. One of the two and neither one are okay. He's saying we need to be moderate in the way we treat each other. Um, The Greek word and it's epikikes in the King James is translated in three different ways. So three, it's mentioned five different times. Three times it's translated as gentle, once as patient, and then in this instance, it's translated as moderation. So it's this idea of being equitable, of being fair, of being mild, of being gentle. It's the idea from Vines of someone who has a pleasant demeanor. We could say it this way, someone who doesn't have super sharp edges around their personality and deportment. It doesn't mean weakness of spirit. It would be quite the opposite. It takes strength to be calm in the midst of conflict and to be kind in our conduct. And that's the challenge. And sure, there are moments to draw a line in the sand, to be abrupt and adamant about what is right and true, but we should never be one degree harsher than what is necessary. So moderation should be manifested in our eyes, Um, In our voices, in our facial expressions, our body postures, our tone of voice, and the question is this, why? And I'm going to give a few answers to that tonight. And the first is simply this, a moderate spirit reduces tension and anxiety. And that's important. Because we could disagree with something as benign as football teams to root for, and people can get their feelings hurt over it. And we need to be moderate. And this is not an application to football, okay? It's an application to the church and to all of our relationships. We need to be moderate, thoughtful, kind, gentle, fair, patient. And a moderate spirit reduces tension and anxiety. When you study the book of Philippians, one gets the sense from the letter that people were treating each other with abrasion they were being a little too gruff in their interactions with each other. And so if you want to take your Bible, you can, you can follow along with me. Or if you want to listen closely, you can do that too. Chapter 1, verse 1, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes this. And this I pray, and then he says this, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. <laughs> okay, he's saying you guys need to be more loving in your knowledge And in your judgment, those are good things, okay? But knowledge and judgment can come across without love. And that's not okay. And he's saying, hey, look, you need to be more and more loving. As your knowledge grows and as your judgment and your discernment grows, knock off the edges. Have more love. It's it's important that your love abounds. Verse 27 of chapter 1. He says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent. I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast. And again, in one spirit, there was a lack of unity here. There was tensions. And he says, I want in the church there to be one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. We need to be on the same page here, guys. We need to be pulling the same direction. We can disagree over things, but we need to be Working together for that which matters most. Chapter 2, verse 2 through 4, he says, fulfill ye my joy, and again, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Okay, we can we, we, we begin to understand what he's saying here. Hey, there's this disunity, there's this strife, there's these things that are being done through vainglory, and that's not okay. We need to correct the spirit here. And he's continuous. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other people better than themselves. So, Yodius, esteem Syntyche better than yourself. And Syntyche, esteem Yodius better than yourself. And we're going to be okay here. Look not every man in his own things, but every man also in the things of others. Chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, the death of the cross. Verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. He's really coming after them here. You can begin, you put this in the big picture, you you get this, this sense of what's taking place in the church. Good church, good people, lots of tension. It's not okay. This isn't the place for it. This is a place where we forgive. This is a place where we love. This is a place for a good spirit. There are some people who walk into a room and put everyone on edge because they're not moderate. They raise stress levels wherever they go. At work, they walk in the room and other people walk out or they go to their office store and close it if they have such a luxury. At home, they walk in, and the oxygen leaves. At church, there's drama surrounding them. And inside their own heart, there is turmoil and anxiety. And they fidget, and they fuss, and they can't look others in the eye. They are difficult and demanding people, and they put a lot of pressure on themselves and on others. So there's this verse in Titus, and you want to turn there, you can. Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. Same author, different context. This is the instruction Paul gave. He said, a man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that he, that he that is such is subverted and sinneth and being condemned of himself. Okay. He's saying someone who is espousing false doctrine in the context of the idea here is someone who's causing trouble. Like, like this guy's not getting it. He, he, he's teaching his own thing or he has his own attitude. He's doing his own thing here. He says, correct them once. And then he says, correct them twice, two admonitions. And he says heretic. It means someone who violates Bible doctrine. Okay, doctrine sounds super spiritual and intellectual, does it not? But it can mean something as simple as violating the fruit of the spirit. So it's someone who can be contentious, unkind, and mean-spirited. It can be as simple as this, a sharp tongue, an irritable spirit, or an overly opinionated personality. And they're causing trouble. And so the Bible says this. This is the instruction. Admonish them twice, and then get them out of there. Why? Because they're causing trouble. And the church matters. And unity matters. And like-mindedness, it matters. And our spirit and how we treat one another In the gospel of Christ, it matters. And and salvation and discipleship and the mission of the church, these things are all on the line. And so he says, admonish them, means confront them, warn them. Okay, they didn't stop. Do it again. They still didn't stop. And he says, okay, now it's time that they need to go. And it's the responsibility of church leadership to remove them from that place. Well, why? Because upset people upset people. They ruin the environment for everyone. The church, and we just read in Philippians throughout the book, is to be a place of peace, of unity, of joy and strength, and tumultuous people ruin what the purpose and the strength of the church is. It is easy for all of us to get to a place where our spirits Are overly critical and edgy we can all get there and the admonition is this don't do that don't get there and if you are there back way way up if you're harsh at work you're gonna find conflict there and 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 sometimes we start saying well everywhere I go the world's just a bad place people at church just They're not good people there, there's just so much conflict there. And people in my home, there's so much conflict in my home, and there's so much conflict in my work environment. And you want to look at them and go, common denominator? like, But we don't see it. We don't see it in ourselves. It's an unpleasant way to live. When we lack generosity in our spirit, we unnecessarily create tension everywhere we go. There was a man named Keith Fletcher and he told a story about his mom in in, in a book that I read recently. And he said, he was speaking about his mom and he said as she grew older, she became increasingly cantankerous, difficult and critical. Her sharp comments made her a bit of a challenge to live with. A couple of months after she passed away, Keith had a dream about her. He said, I came downstairs for supper and there she was sitting at the table table, as always. (laughs) He said, Mom, you're here. You're back. She nodded. He said, but you passed away and went to heaven. She nodded again. Well, mom, if you've been to heaven, you've seen it there and you know what it's like. Can you tell us about heaven? What is it like there? What's heaven really like? And she shot a glance at him and said curtly, I didn't like it. (laughs) And you know, we know people like that. I go to a perfect place and I, I don't like it there either. But sometimes we're that person. And we grumble and we whine. About our workload and our fatigue and our finances and our busyness, our aches, our pains, our relationships, and everything else. And Paul says, be moderate in your spirit. That's not moderation. And it's not okay. The challenge is this. Have a pleasant demeanor. As you age, have softer edges to your life and your spirit. Be kind and patient and gentle and good, even when you don't feel like it. A moderate spirit reduces tension and anxiety. Number two, a moderate spirit makes us pleasing to both the Lord and to other people. As Jesus grew, he gained favor in the sight of both God and man. Has one been one of my prayers for my children. Lord, help them to gain favor with you. Help them to gain favor with man. It should be one of the goals of our life. But I'm gonna tell you, insecure people are the ones who respond the poorest to other people in life. It doesn't take much for them to feel threatened. One crossway glance and they feel slighted and offended. And so they overreact by acting in regrettable and abrasive ways. And you and I know this, abrasive people are hard to tolerate. The more abrasive we are, the more difficult it is for people to be around us. They're hard to love. And it seems like our most anxious and stressful moments occur in the relationships to the people with whom we're the closest. So our spouse, our children, those that we love the most, we often treat the least. So something like this happens. We feel neglected or overlooked or maybe affronted or things just aren't going our way. So we get agitated and angry. We argue, we speak harshly, then we insult, or we speak loudly and we raise our voices. We lose our temper, we lose our compassion. We sulk or we withdraw our love. See, how do you know all those things, Brother Daniel? Guilty. And if you were honest, we could all probably agree around this list. We spend less time being moderate with those closest to us. And that needs to change. Being a moderate person. As we mature, our disposition, it needs to soften. What's mature? I don't know. You tell me. When should a person who's a child of God reflect his attributes? See, our culture is coarse, and our culture is abrasive, and that becomes reflected in our actions and dispositions. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1 says this Who is as the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom, now listen, it makes his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. In other words, the person who knows the love of Christ, who has the knowledge and the wisdom of God, doesn't walk around with a twisted, contorted face and a frown on. The love of Christ and the wisdom God gives a man shines through his face. It's visible in an external way. There is boldness and there is a shine there. And by the way, boldness is translated. It also just means the idea of strength. And one man said, nothing is so strong as gentleness and nothing so gentle as real strength. And Christ certainly was that way. And when you stop for a moment and you reflect, say, like, who, who are the people who have positively impacted my life the most? Who, who are the people that have had a good difference, made a great difference in my life? Usually, they didn't overreact. They weren't harsh. They didn't have a consistently bad attitude. They were gentle, patient, and kind. In a word, they were moderate. And that's Paul's challenge. Be a person who, who's moderate. A Moderate person reduces tension and anxiety. a moderate spirit, maximizes impact in every area of life. And to the three, moderate spirit will always accomplish more in your life than a harsh spirit will. No one was more successful in his life than Jesus Christ. And his default disposition was always moderation. Did he have moments he was upset? Sure. Were there moments that he was caustic? Yes, but never one degree more than he had to be. Did he have times where he even called people names? He did, but he did it in the right way. But his default disposition, it was one of compassion. He possessed a willingness to touch and to help those with with whom he came into contact with. He gave other people the benefit of the doubt. He made them prove him wrong. His default disposition was one of grace one of love and compassion and kindness, and he modeled for us the kind of spirit and heart that he wants for us to have. Time with him is essential if we would reflect that kind of heart and attitude. That is what rubs off. And minus that, how do we become more like him? And I'm not talking about some religious, like I read my Bible today and checked off the box and spent, you know, 20 hours in prayer that's what i'm talking about i'm talking about real sincere transparent open humble interaction with the lord and allowing his spirit to mold us and to shape us and to reduce the tension and anxiety in our own hearts so that we can be walk into a room and reduce the tension and anxiety in the rooms into which we walk and into the lives in which we touch so that we can come to someone who has tension and max, be a, ma- maximize the positive there and love them and help them. And that starts with this. And it starts with sincere time with him, reflective, thoughtful, quiet, introspective, humble time with the Lord. And that begins to rub off onto us. We need to learn to be calm in conflict When you get upset, your face distorts. I remember one time, Elizabeth saying to me, babe, you're upset. And you look so intense. And I wish you could see your face in the mirror right now. So I did. And I didn't like what I saw. We need to learn to not be okay with the faces that we make sometimes. Moderation should impact our face. The wisdom and the love of Christ gives a man strength. It gives a woman strength and power and boldness, and it makes their face to shine. And there's a positive impact when they walk into a room and they, they are around other people. We need to be calm in conflict. We need to be kind in our conduct. Proverbs 25, 15 says, a soft tongue breaketh the bone. A gentle tongue is more rigid or more more powerful than a rigid bone. Gentle words get through to the hardest of heads. Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath. But grievous words, they stir up anger. There's a story that I read in this book called Worry Less, Live More by this man named Robert Morgan. He tells a story about John Wooden. He says, John Wooden was one of the most revered coaches in the history of college basketball. And of course, this would go back to the UCLA days that he was there in California. And he said he credited much of his success to his dad. He recalled a boyhood occasion when he watched his father deal with a certain situation. His rural Indiana County would pay local farmers to take teams of mules or horses into the gravel pits scattered throughout the county and haul out loads of gravel. Some pits were deeper than others, and sometimes it was hard for a team to pull a wagon filled with gravel out through the wet sand and up the steep incline. One steamy summer day, wrote Wooden, a young farmer was trying to get his team of horses to pull a fully loaded wagon out of the pit. He was whipping and cursing those beautiful plow horses, which were frothing at the mouth, stomping and pulling back from him. The elder Wooden watched for a while, then went over to the young man and said, let me take them for you. And he says, dad started talking to the horses, almost whispering to them stroking their noses with a soft touch. Then he walked between them, holding their bridles and bits while he continued talking, very calmly and gently as they settled down. And gradually he stepped out in front of them and gave a little whistle to start them moving forward while he guided the reins. Within moments, those two big plow horses pulled the wagon out of the gravel pit as easy as could be, as if they were happy to do it. And John Wooden said, I've never forgotten what I saw him do and how he did it. Over the years, I've seen a lot of leaders act like angry young, that that angry young farmer who lost control. And so much more usually can be accomplished by dad's calm, confident, and steady approach. And Wooden writes, this is the lesson I took away, quote, it takes strength inside to be gentle on the outside. And that's what the Bible says. A soft answer turns away wrath. A soft tongue breaks the bone. The rest of the verse, In verse 5 says this, let your moderation be known unto all men. And then he says these words, the Lord is at hand. And that can be taken two different ways, but both are true. And the first is this, the Lord is near. Like literally, he's close by. He's present in your life. He's not going to ever leave you. He's not going to ever forsake you. But there are some moments in our life when the way we've treated fellow church members or our spouse or a loved one or someone in our work environment, when the presence of Christ may not be blessed by the way that we behave, the way we say something, the way that we act, the Lord is near. He is our help. He is our accountability. He stands by ready to assist and strengthen and comfort us in our frustrations and our failures, in our disappointment. In Acts 23, 11, the Bible says of Paul that the, the night following the Lord stood by him. He told Paul, be of good cheer. He said, I'm here. It's okay. He said, you've testified about me here. You're going to testify about me in Rome. God is always present and he's there. Be of good cheer. He is present with you. The Lord is at hand. He's also your accountability. And there's another way to take that. That the Lord is coming soon. That he's coming, that the time that we have is coming to a close. That we need to maximize the relationships and the time that we have. The things that irritate us, the things that keep us from having a good attitude, in the light of eternity, do they really matter? Like how big of a deal is that really? You really want to have a bad attitude about that and isolate that individual and hurt the gospel and the cause of Christ? You really want to be potentially one of the reasons someone may not get saved or may not come back to this church because they watched or sensed attention here? You really want to be that reason? Like, guard carefully what you do and how you do it. If we put this on a, if we put our problems on a timeline today, The things that really irritated you and bothered you 10 years ago, do they really bother you that much today? Like how big a deal are they? Because the truth is most of, if not all, those problems are completely irrelevant and it's only been 10 years. And the problems in our hearts and the tensions that we just flare up with today over the silliest of things, in 10 years from now, How much are those really going to matter? Yet we could ruin our testimony. We could hurt the church. We could hurt the Savior who died for us and gave so much because of a bad attitude and an unpleasant disposition. And there's this thought here. The problems are a permanent part of life. If there were tensions in Philippi between two women, And here's Eastland Baptist Church thousands of years later. Nothing's changed. There are going to be tensions here too. But let's deal with them the right way. Eternal anticipation is an antidote to current frustration. The Lord is at hand. Like eternity matters. So let's keep that before us. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. You have a testimony. Other people know it. They see you. We don't live on islands. And when you walk into the room or you sit down, what do other men know about you? What's your name? What are you communicating through your body language? And the words that you say. What are you known for? When your name's mentioned, what do other people think? And from this one verse, Paul would say one of the things they need to think about you is that you're a moderate person. There's someone who's patient, there's someone who's gentle, there's someone who's kind. There's a person that even if things go sideways, they're not gonna overreact and go to one extreme or the other. They're safe. And Paul says, let everyone know about it. That's who you are. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. There's a poem that this lady wrote. And she said, at the spot God placed you, begin at once to do little things that brighten up the lives surrounding you. For if everybody brightened up the spot on which they're standing by being more considerate and a little less demanding... This dark old world would very soon eclipse the evening star if everybody brightened up the corner where they are. The message of Philippians is this. Your joy and your peace and your strength is not ever determined by the circumstances in your life. It's not determined by the people around you. It is determined by the decisions you make in here in the work that God does in your heart. So in this Philippian church, there were two women who loved the Lord. They got in a fight, hurt the church, and Paul says, let's get it right. And in the church in Tulsa, there were some members who listened to this story, received the instruction, and they got it right too. So let's keep from getting there and whatever tensions might be present, And I know of none, by the way. But it's good preventative medicine, if nothing else. Let's keep those things at bay. Let's protect this place. There's a special work that God's given us here. Let's keep it moving forward. and Let's never be a reason for hurting what God's doing in this special place.